Good to see you guys. You can tell there's a lot of gaps as Pastor Ron and Happy are both in Israel. And they led a team from our church there. So if you're here for the first time and there's, this isn't how it usually looks. So um, there's a much uh, older man that's usually preaching. It's not, he's not, he's not, okay, anyway. Um, Acts 4. It's a good start. They're going to listen to the podcast. I'm going to get a text like tomorrow morning. No, just edit it out. All right. There's a lot of kinds of community. And today we're going to talk about community from Acts 4. There's a lot of different kinds of community, especially in this social media age where you can have uh, groups about basically anything. You can join a group on Facebook. I'd bet you can join a group on Facebook um, that says... We love tacos at 3 p.m. And then you can get in a fight with people who like tacos at 3 a.m. Um, because there's different kinds of groups and people are very passionate about kind of silly things nowadays. Um, but these groups fill and social media encourages different kinds of groups and more segregation. Sports is another fun group where you can have uh, Angels fans and Yankees fans, Dodgers fans, and people will argue about that for days. And uh, I don't know why you argue that much about it, but it can be good fun. Family is also a rather interesting group in that you can have some very weird people in your family. You can have very normal people in your family. You have extroverts and introverts. You have people who uh, love to talk, people who don't like to talk. You get um, older family members and younger family members, family members who are sick, and um, all kinds of dynamics when you bring the big family together. And then you get the church. Now, the church is a super interesting group in that we don't have the commonality that a family would normally have, where we're not born into the same bloodline. Um, But the commonality that we end up getting is through the person of Jesus. And so we are related through the blood of the Lamb, and we're related through the Holy Spirit as we start to try to build this family. And um, I think especially in a small church, a lot of us can rub each other the wrong way a lot. Um, a small church is much like <laughs> a, a small church is much like a small town in a lot of ways, where um, we get to know each other really well, and that can be a fantastic thing. Um, it is a fantastic thing, amen. Um, and so today we're going to look at Acts four and look at uh, some of what the first church looked like. What did the first church do? Um, what was the first church celebrating and doing together, and uh, what helped them succeed as they? glorified God and sought to further the kingdom. Uh, The church is made up of believers from all time. The church is the bride of Christ. Um, And this church in the book of Acts was very much in need of moving fast and growing fast. Uh, There there was a person named Jesus who left, and one of the last things he said to Peter was, on this rock I will build my church. He left and ascended. Um, In the book of Acts we get things like Pentecost, We get um, a couple of healings. We get this really weird scene where Peter and John are very bold, so much that they get put before a council, and then afterwards they pray for more boldness. Um, It's an interesting chapter in chapter 3. But right after that, we get Acts uh, 4. We get Acts 4, and we get this section in starting in verse 32 um, where the believers are celebrated for their um, unity. The unity that these believers had uh, is celebrated, and it's marked as extremely important. Uh, 
there was a man that would rise to power soon named Nero. Now, Nero was an interesting person in that he left Rome for a short time, and Rome burned. And when he came back, he had to address why, why did Rome burn? What happened while you were gone, Nero? And so he ended up blaming the Christians. Uh, Christians would be persecuted for quite a while after that, and he would burn them as a torch uh, to symbolize their punishment for burning Rome. Uh, It's needless to say that the church needed to grow. It needed to grow fast. It needed to spread fast. We see Pentecost is speaking in tongues. We see healings. And we see the unity of believers as ways that this church body grew and this family spread. You can turn to Acts 4, verse 32. If you don't have a Bible uh, in the seat in front of you, there's Bibles underneath. Um, And if you don't have one at home, you can take that with you um, as our gift to you. But you can turn to Acts 4, 32. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The first point in your notes right there is that true unity is sacrificial. True unity is sacrificial. The believers were of one heart and soul, and nobody counted anything as belonging to himself. It wasn't his own. It was for the body. It was for the church. Um, It it didn't count as their own. Now, the trick here is that they were unified, not uniform. We see later on in Paul's uh, writings that there's many gifts and there's many different parts of the body. And we need all those different parts in order to build up the body and edify the church and further the kingdom of God. The church was very unified, but it's not because they were all the same. Everyone was different. Um, They were unified because... Uh, They shared everything. Um, The Holy Spirit worked in amazing ways and unified the church back then. This is, a lot of times people will come to this section and look at it and say, that's an ideal church. Um, And that's probably perfect and that's impossible to regain. So the ideal church was back then, uh, and there's... It looks like there was no problems. If you look down into Acts 5, you'll notice right away that there's problems. Um, These two people, Ananias and Sapphira, come up and... Uh, They try try to start lying and cause a little bit of disunity. We'll come back to that later, but um, there were problems in this early church. The trick is that nobody was selfish with their stuff. I have the privilege of leading children's ministry, and um, sometimes I'll go work in preschool, and being selfish with your stuff is very evident in preschool. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot easier to hide as you get older, and you just be like, oh, no, I just don't, I don't know, it's mine. Um, in preschool, when people have their cars, these little kids have their cars, they really don't want to share their car. And you kind of have to sit them down and be like, listen, you have to share your stuff. Um, we need to share. We need to encourage that. Parents know that full well. You've got to teach your kids to share at a young age because it's ingrained in you that your property is yours and you do not want to share your property. The early church didn't have a problem with sharing what was theirs because ultimately their eyes were focused on Jesus. They were seeking Um, God's will and not their own will. It always throws me off when uh, one of the little kids will just offer something to some other little kid. Like, here, you can have this. And you're like, oh my gosh, I need to write an Instagram post right now (laughs) and uh, share about my child who uh, just did this wonderful thing and then hashtag blessed at the end because your child's growing. Um, it's, It's such a weird moment that you're like, whoa, That's usually the response for millennials is to write an Instagram post. 
it's not natural for us to desire to share like this. In fact, I'd argue it's a supernatural working of God. So why then in the church today do sometimes we have a hard time sharing things? Um, I'd argue that part of it's from our culture. I think our culture has taught us to um, not trust people as easily. Um, I think that there have been times where the church has sinned in general um, in being untrustworthy. And I think people have been hurt by that and have a hard time trusting. Uh, It's fear of that happening. It's lying. It's being cheated. And sometimes it's honestly sin, being selfish with your stuff and not wanting to um, share it. There are some things we need to move past in order to have authentic community. Notice in uh, verse 32, there's two words in there. It says, the believers were of one heart and soul. This should hearken back to Deuteronomy 6 for you in your mind. If you remember that section, uh, this is called the Shema for those of you that went to Wildwood. Um, This is right after that. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. Um, Heart and soul is in the Shema. In fact, this would be something that in Jewish tradition they would repeat daily. And so being of one heart and soul would point back to what they were taught to love God with. And so because they loved God with their heart and their soul, they were able to love each other with their heart and their soul too. And they were unified through their pursuit of God. Devotion to God, next point, In your notes, devotion to God leads to unity. Devotion to God leads to unity. The language used here in this verse is kinship language. It's family language. The people here, uh, this wasn't normal for that society to live like this, to be unified like this. Uh, It was really normal for a family to be unified like this and for a family to live like this. Family is a big thing uh, for my generation Uh, My generation will say things like um, friends are family. Um, They'll call each other family. They'll call each other brother, sister. Um, It's a big thing in my generation um, to support family and to bring it up like this. Family is also important for parents and grandparents. um, As you have kids, you really try to make time for family. You try to make time for uh, being together and having meals and spending time like that. To the point where if I came home and my brother Mark wasn't there at dinner like he was supposed to be, would I be concerned? Y- yes. Uh, the, 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 natural <laughs> the natural response would be, yes, I would be concerned. Um, if I came home and my dad was sick, and not just with a flu, would I care for him? Would I try to spend time with him and hope that he gets healed? The answer is yes. Parents, if your child was missing, would you search for your child? Um, parents of adult children, if your child needed money, um, otherwise he'd be homeless, would you give your child money? Would you try to support your child? (laughs) I see some shaking heads. Uh, So we'll talk about family next week. Um, (laughs) But no, so these these are easy questions to answer. And so I would argue that even in the church, when a member's missing, when somebody that's normally here isn't here, that should hurt us the same way as it would in our own family. Um, I think sometimes in the church we have almost worshipped our own family over the church body. I think that that can at times be very difficult to have true community when we do that, um, where we can have a missing member and, and nobody notice. I think that's a shame, and I think that's something that 
um, we can work on as a church um, to seek out those members, to seek out um, this family, and to truly live as family, just as you would in your own um, nuclear family. Yeah, and the way that we do this is through action. It's not through... um, it's not just through a prayer is great and sometimes it's all we can do. It's not just through prayer or sending texts that say you're sending good vibes their way or good thoughts their way. I honestly don't know what that means. The more that I think about sending good thoughts someone's way, I'm very confused about what that means. I had a friend who, um, his daughter was sick, and somebody sent him a text that said, good thoughts your way. And he said, well, thanks for nothing. Um, because, yeah, because his daughter was sick and good thoughts doesn't do anything. He needed action. He needed prayer. Um, yeah, he needed the church body. Take every opportunity. Next point in your notes. Take every opportunity. Oh my gosh, it's not in there. No, I skipped one. Just kidding. Got you. Um, last thing on this topic. Uh, be very careful. Uh, I'm, I'm going to really emphasize this for me and my generation. Be very careful with how we talk about the bride of Christ. Very careful. Um, That is Jesus' bride. The church is Jesus' bride. And when we gossip about the church and put the church down, it is very harmful. Um, It's really not good at all for edifying or building up. Um, I don't think that you would find one husband in here who would like it if you talked badly about their wife to them or talked badly about their wife to somebody else. Um, Jesus would be the same way. I don't think that Jesus enjoys it when we talk badly about his wife. Um, so gossiping about, oh, village this or oh, village that is sinful. Um, if you desire that we as a church family do something, um, then let's talk about it. Let's do it. Let's deal with things. Let's uh, move forward as a family and as a community and glorify God in that way. Acts 4.33 And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The next point in your note for real this time is that they devoted themselves to the sharing of the gospel. They devoted themselves to the sharing of the gospel. Again, as I mentioned, the church needed to spread and fast. So this was very important to them. In order for the church to survive, they shared the gospel and they shared it fast. Um, They bared witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And they told people about that. People were about to be martyred and killed. That's how much they believed this. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus so much that they went out to die um, just for sharing this, just for sharing this truth. The great power of God came through the people as they bared witness to the gospel. The gospel was the prime, one of the primary concerns in their lives. Take every opportunity, next point in your notes, take every opportunity you are given to share the gospel. We'll get it this time. Sometimes I miss this myself. I miss opportunities to share the gospel. Um, And it's kind of easy for me, just to be completely honest, when people ask what I do for a job, and I say I'm a pastor, that, I mean, that leads right into it. I don't, I can't just like walk around it. Well, I work for an organization. Um, It's not, that's not what I can do. I just, I'm a pastor. And that leads to, oh, what do you think about this? Um, or where do you go to school? Oh, I, I'm in seminary and I do this. That leads to more conversations. Uh, there, some, many of you were there for this best man speech that I gave that was 25 minutes long. 
Um, and thank you so much for living through that. Um, your forgiveness and your love for me is great. Um, in the middle of the speech, I, I, I shared the gospel. I was reliving the speech with somebody um, a few weeks ago. And we were having a good laugh about how long it was. And they were like, and then you shared the gospel to everybody at a wedding. And I was like, well, okay, hold on, time out. I was like, if I get an opportunity to share the gospel with that many people, I'm going to do it. I don't want to miss an opportunity like that where, I mean, if you hand a pastor a mic, hopefully he's going to share the gospel with you. Uh, That would be my hope. Um, Take every opportunity you have. Now, that's not to say that I'm some super evangelist who shares the gospel all the time with people at Starbucks. Um, I have, just not all the time. Like, I think I've done it once or twice. I'll just be up front. Um, There's been many missed opportunities, and I'm a sinful human being. There we go. Uh, The people knew how to do this. The people knew how to share the gospel when they could. And they testified to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. They loved him so much. He was such a high place in their life that this is what they talked about. This was their conversation. Um, I'd be surprised if their openers were, did you see the Roman Olympics recently? Or um, they, they just talked about what they experienced and knew. And what they experienced and knew was Jesus. Next two verses, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them. They brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The people were unified down to their wallets. That's a point in your note. The people were unified down to their wallets. Now, some of us might read this and think that's communism or socialism, and we shouldn't do that. Um, That's not what was happening. The people still had property, and they still owned things. The way that this is... um, The way this is described in this section is that some people had extra houses or some people had extra property and they'd sell that. Um, And then they distribute it to the apostles as any had need. So they still owned things, they still possessed things, and it wasn't this government ruling and spreading out of the wealth. Um, It was the church that was doing that. Um, And they were doing it well. Money, rightfully so, can be a sensitive issue in the church today. Um, Money can be very sensitive. You turn on the TV and you start to watch some of these preachers, uh, what we call health and wealth preachers, who are preaching a prosperity gospel, that you need to be healthy, you need to be wealthy, and by the way, donate to my ministry. Um, And they get healthy and wealthy, um, and people lose a lot of money. They've twisted the gospel for something that's a lie. And they've twisted the gospel for their own personal gain. Uh, When we talk about money in the church, we talk about it um, very much with fear, and we we don't want to sound like those health and wealth preachers. But there is very much truth here that the people didn't count their money, even their wallets, as their own. And they shared that. If there was a need, they gave. Much like the argument I made about your family with your kids. If your kids have a need, there's no way that you don't try to fill that need um, if you're a good parent. Uh, So much, I, I mean, much like if within the church body there is a need, um, you would feel. I think of so many times where elders have come up here and presented uh, missionaries that need tires for a car or um, they need a surgery for their child. And I think of um, what's really cool is to see the village filling those needs. And you guys come up and you say, we need to fill that need. 
because there's a missionary in need, um, of, and I have finances to help that. And I think that we've done a good job of that with our missionaries. I think that's really great. It's important to note that their needs were taken care of. Their needs were taken care of, not their simple wants or their simple desires to, oh, I'd really like a nicer house, and they gave money for the nicer house. Uh, as many as persons was in need, um, it was taken care of. I think about um, my own sinfulness in this area sometimes. I can be pretty moody with my stuff and be like, that's mine. I don't want you to touch it. Please get away from it and don't ruin it. Um, and I don't think that that's the right attitude to have. Um, and so I confess that when I'm like that. Um, but there are times where um, God's people need something that I have. And I should be willing to give that. Um, I think we should all be willing to give uh, if we have something that God's people need, we should be willing to give it. We need to learn to account nothing as our own, but as Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, we need to seek him first. Um, if we truly believe and live like eternity matters above this life, um, then I think our possessions are less and less likely to be important to us. Um, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you as well. Um, Matthew 19, 16 through 23, and then I threw Peter's verse in there because I thought it was cool. Uh, Matthew 19, you can turn there if you would like. Hopefully you know this story. If you don't, that's okay. Um, this is the story of the rich young ruler. This man comes up to Jesus. says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Does that sound familiar today? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a good person, so I'm probably going to heaven. Um, when we read in Scripture that, no, you're not a good person. Um, in fact, all of us are evil from birth. Uh, so Jesus, anyway, sorry, Jesus says to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man asked him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, if you're reading the story for the first time, you're like, the guy is so close. He's got it. He's just going to sell his stuff, and then he's going to follow Jesus. And when the young man heard this, he, it says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus begins to tell his disciples how difficult it is for a rich person to enter heaven. It's going to be really hard if you're rich to enter heaven, um, because Jesus literally asked for us to give up everything. He says that in Luke. The cost of following him is that you give up everything. Verse 27, Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter, um, Peter opens his mouth a lot in the New Testament, and many times it's wrong. Um, and then every once in a while you're like, Yeah, good job, Peter. And then usually they'll contrast it with like, And then Peter was called Satan by Jesus. Um, so here Peter's like, See, we've left everything and we've followed you. Jesus is like, Good, then you'll enter heaven. Um, later on, Jesus says, can you drink of my wrath, the cup of my wrath? And Peter says, we can. And he, Jesus is like, okay, you will. 
Um, that's much of the cost of following Jesus, leaving everything, drinking the cup that he drank. If he was persecuted, we will be persecuted also. That's not somebody just being mean on social media to you for being a Christian. Um, persecution is real, and it's happening in the world today. And uh, we believe that it's coming to America and coming fast. Persecution is real. It's happening. The rich young man gave up everything. Uh, I mean, didn't give up everything. Contrast that with the book of Acts, where you have rich people who are giving up everything. This command that Jesus gave back in Matthew is being lived out in Acts 4. Now, this is this. Let me let me argue this. Rich people are not evil. Um, sometimes uh, we'll drive through like richer areas of Orange County, and I'll I'll look at a house and I'll be like, huh, rich people, um, which is uh, just a joke because I don't really have anything against rich people. Um, but rich people by themselves aren't evil. Um, God has given them a great amount of money. In fact. Many things the church does around the world today would not be able to happen if people didn't have money. Um, If God's people weren't given money, um, places like Biola University wouldn't exist. Um, Missions would be um, on its last limbs. Uh, People are called to send and people are called to go. Um, Rich people in the church are a good thing if they're giving their money away and using it well. Now notice how it says that the money was distributed. It was given to the apostles, it was given to the disciples, and they would spread it out among them. Um, it wasn't a rich person walking up and saying, here's this giant check I have for you, and we're going to do a ceremony, and it's $5,000 in your name, and congratulations, and you can look up to me the rest of your life. No, the, uh, the rich people would give the money to the apostles, lay it at their feet, and the apostles would distribute it. Now, why would they do this? Well, back then, um, we had much of an honor-shame culture, and so it would be very much an honorable thing to do to give stuff away like that. And they could do it for their own good and receive honor for it. Um, But by giving it to the apostles, the people weren't going to receive honor for it. Um, They were going to be anonymous, and they were going to lay to their feet and say, further God's work, this isn't about me. Further the kingdom, it's not about me. Next point in your notes, giving sacrificially should not be to glorify self, but to glorify God. It's becoming more and more common to do good things, to do rallies, social justice um, is a good thing. Um, And sometimes it can become the main thing. I mean, when people do this, a lot of times non-Christians will say things like, oh, I just feel good about myself when I do it. I feel really good about giving. Um, I don't know, I guess I'm just a good person. Uh, that's really a selfish motive to give, um, to feel good about yourself. Um, and just doing it for that is not at all the end. Now, you do feel good when you're glorifying God, hopefully. Um, and hopefully that does come with that. But ultimately, we, when we give, we should be seeking God's glory and seeking his uh, praise, and not seeking praise of man or not seeking um, praise of ourselves to feel good about ourselves. A good example of giving sacrificially. I've been, uh, I've had the privilege of going to Endicott a couple times, and um, small town church ministry uh, is very much different. Um, we have two former members here, um, Fred and Cinda Tribble, who are pastors in a small town in Washington, um, Endicott, and um, 
Fred, sorry, Fred's a pastor. Cinda's his wife. Cinda's not a pastor. Um, Fred's a pastor there, and they left um, here to go there and minister to those people there. And if you spend a week with Fred, you'll notice that small-town ministry is different. Fred um, spends basically every day seeking to serve other people. And he'll have his lawnmower out there. He'll be trimming trees. He'll be weed whacking. He'll be visiting shut-ins. Um, Cinda will be doing things in the community, visiting shut-ins. She'll be um, doing arts and crafts with people, um, hosting things like dogs in the park. They are giving sacrificially of what they've been given. Um, Fred and Cinda are not rich by any means, um, but they have things that they can give, and they give those things well. Uh, one day when I was there, we, uh, we went up to this house, and we were painting the house um, as it had the weather had worn the paint. We're painting the house, and there's this older man inside, and he's watching um, Thomas the Tank Engine and laughing a lot. And my first thought is, wow, this guy is weird. Like, what a, what a weird guy. Um, that was sinful to think that. And, um, yeah, there's more of the I'm not perfect. Um, later that week, he ended up coming to the Bible study they held at church. And he comes down the stairs, and he's got this big beard. Um, and he's an older man. And we're sitting there, and we're talking to him. And he's telling stories. And many of them don't make sense. And you're like, well, this, this is an older guy that happens with people when they're um, getting older. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, we, we were talking about Scripture. He's talking about his favorite stories. And uh, he's laughing about um, things that David did, and he's laughing about Peter, um, as many of us do. Um, and uh, he, we start talking about Revelation, and his face just goes completely serious. And he goes, I'd really love to see that holy city. And that statement sticks in my mind because I'm like, what was it about the holy city that he so much desired to be there? What, what, what was his desire to be in heaven? Why was it so great? Um, and I understand that more and more as I get older, that the desire for heaven is great. And in his older age, it was so great that it was beyond his failing memory that he desired to be there. Uh, he asked to sing the hymn in the garden, and it was the first time I ever heard that hymn. Um, it's a really sweet hymn about being in the presence of God and walking in the garden with him. That's why he wanted to be in that holy city. He wanted to be in God's presence. He wanted the pain, the suffering to be over. Um, it was less than a year later that that man passed away. Uh, and he is now in that holy city, experiencing the presence of God, um, living there fully. Um, loving sacrificially gets you um, glimpses into people's lives like that where you get the opportunity to see how are other people living and how are they pursuing God with their lives. Um, if Fred and Cinda hadn't decided to do that, I would not have known that um, about that man. Fred's teaching um, how to love the people of the city um, really impacted me that week. It really impacted me the next time that I was able to visit. Um, in that this sacrificial love um, is really for the edification of the body. It's not always cute and it's all, not always nice, but it's always worth it. The last two verses, 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Next point of your note, leaders exhort not just through words, but also through actions. Leaders exhort not just through words, but also through actions. We see that this man named Joseph was called Barnabas by the disciples. Name means son of encouragement, son of exhortation. Um, we see that he was a person who edified the body, who encouraged. Uh, it's, it's argued that he was a preacher among the people, um, and he taught them how to live lives to follow Jesus. And you see here that he did what he taught. Uh, Barnabas taught that you should be giving up things in order to follow Jesus, in order to further the kingdom. And he sells a piece of land and lays at the apostles' feet. Uh, if you know much of the book of Acts, you know Barnabas is a main character. Um, Barnabas ends up being best friends with a guy named Paul. Yeah, Paul. He ends up being really close to the guy named Paul. And Paul and Barnabas do a lot of missionary work together. They have a little um, argument over a person and they reunify. Um, Paul and Barnabas imitate community quite well. Barnabas was a huge leader of the church. Um, Barnabas had a special place with the believers. They loved Barnabas. He, uh, he was an encouragement to them. He exhorted them to do great things and to live um, in the reality of Jesus' message. Uh, from what we learn in Acts 14, Barnabas looked like Zeus. Um, Barnabas was uh, confused for Zeus at one point. Um, and so Barnabas wasn't just this like weird guy who was like walking around. He was, um, he was rather important to the church and looked like a Greek god, apparently. Um, what this world might count as precious to Barnabas, he considered nothing in light of eternity. In light of what was going to last, Barnabas sold stuff in order that the church might be furthered, in order that the church might be encouraged um, and that God's word might go forth. Now, there wasn't an unwritten rule that you had to sell land to be cool. So it wasn't like, if you're not selling your land, you're not one of us. Um, Barnabas was just doing that. Um, Acts 5 um, kind of contrasts the story of Barnabas is selling things and he's giving it up. Um, I don't know how they figured out it was Barnabas. They probably um, did some research or something, but... It ended up spreading, and people wanted to do the same thing. That's where you get to Acts 5. Acts 5 comes in, and you get uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, contrasted against people who were honestly pursuing God. People who have put God first and pursued him sincerely. Ananias and Sapphira come in. It says this, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And laid it at the apostles' feet. Now that wasn't the sin that he only laid part of it. It was that he kept some of it for himself and then lied. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why was it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So this guy comes in, really kind of a weird story. This guy comes in and he just, he's like, yep, this is all the money that we have. And I kept some for myself, but I'm not telling you that. Um, and Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is just like, no, you're lying. Why are you lying? Um, 
Is it uh, good for you to lie to God like this, to lie to the people like this? We're all trying to live sincere community. We're all desiring to pursue God together sincerely, and you're lying um, in order to act like you're part of this but not fully live it out. Uh, so these young men rise up, they wrap them up, and they bury them. It seems like it happens really fast um, because what happens is after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Not knowing what happened, Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell dead at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. They're given a chance to repent, and they don't. Um, uh, Sapphira is supposed to come in, and she's supposed to repent and, and give this up, and um, she doesn't. And the sin isn't that they're keeping part of it. Again, the sin is that they're not being sincere. They're lying to God. They're acting like they're part of the community, and they're not. Next point in your notes. Don't pretend to be living in unity with the community. Whoa, that's confusing. Don't pretend to be living in unity within the community if you're not truly all in. If you're not truly all in, don't pretend. Now, that's not to say that you're going to fall over dead if you're pretending. Um, it's just saying that God takes this very seriously. Um, and eventually, your works and your deeds will be weighed out at the end of time. It's not worth testing the Holy Spirit over it. It's not worth lying to God over We'll move forward to application. There's a few points that I want, I want to, us to take away from this. Um, true community is a very good thing. Um, it's very hard at times. It can be painful. It's difficult. Um, but that's family. Um, you wouldn't just remove yourself from your family if things got hard. Um, you, bear, you bear through. You, you push through. Um, and you seek to glorify God just as we do in the church. Point one, count nothing as your own. Count nothing as your own. Um, hopefully you understood this when you came to Jesus, but he has asked us to give up everything. That's the cost of following him. Um, and it's not as evident in places like America where we have a lot of possessions, um, but elsewhere in the world, um, I think of in the Middle East, when people come to Christ, they lose everything. Like legitimately, they're cut off from their family, they lose all their possessions, and they're forced to make this decision to follow Jesus. Their comfort's gone because they said, I'm a Christian. Um, they are forced to count nothing as their own. Now, we've been um, given many things by God, and I don't think that we should feel guilty about that. I think that's just where we live. Um, but we shouldn't count it as our own, and we shouldn't be selfish about it. Next point is to seek unity. To seek unity. Um, seek unity. Seek to be unified with people. Um, seek forgiveness. Seek willingness to apologize. Um, 
the relationships that we have in the church are far more important um, than silly disagreements and silly arguments. In fact, you see in some of Paul's letters where he um, has people like Yodia and Syntyche who are arguing, and he writes them, telling them, just tell them to agree with each other. Like, stop arguing because this is not more important than the kingdom of God. This is not more important than the bride of Christ. Uh, your silly arguments are not worth it. And there are times I'll, where I will argue with people and all of a sudden be like, why, why am I doing this? Like, this is such a silly argument. And it comes from my pride. It comes from pride sometimes that we argue with people and fight with people over silly things. Next point is to give generously. To give generously. Some of you are young and you don't have a lot of money. Um, give generously of what you can give. Give generously of your time. Um, my friend John says that young men, young single men in the church have no excuse for not doing ministry. Um, that they should be bearing the burden of their youth and they should be doing ministry as often as possible and as much as possible. Um, yeah, John is a good guy. He's somebody who um, lives out the truth that he believes. In fact, every Sunday morning he's at an um, abortion clinic marching for pro-life before he goes to church. Um, yeah, he, uh, he lives sincerely and sincerely acts on what he believes. Last thing is to be a part of the family. Be a part of the family. Um, we are in an interesting place in the world, America, where we have an entertainment culture, where we go to movies and we sit down and we watch um, and in movie theaters, nobody's going to walk up to you and shake your hand and introduce themselves to you um, because you're there to watch a movie. And if they do, you're like, okay, well, I'll probably move now. Um, the church is not like a movie theater in that you are here um, in order to be edified and built up, in order to be convicted, hopefully, by the Holy Spirit, um, and in order to be a family, in order to go out the rest of the week and be the church. Um, to those communities, those neighborhoods that you're in. Um, the church is not a place where you can withdraw and be like, well, I don't like what they're doing, so I'm not going to be a part of it. Um, you're a part of this family. Um, so when we use words like they and talk about an abstract village, um, you're, we're part of it too. We're all part of this body, and we should be striving to further this body, to be part of this family, um, and ultimately to be glorifying God, hopefully through unity. Um, we have to be a part of this family. There's no place for pew sitting. There's no place for um, staying in the background, not in a church body, not in a church family. Um, the church has honestly um, become a place in um, the young adult's mind where it's secondary. It's not that important. Um, my generation especially does this, where um, I go to seminary at Biola University, and they do polls. This is a Christian university where people have professed their faith, um, who have signed contracts. They do polls every year, how many people are involved in a local church. Um, and the stunning thing is that the highest the poll has ever been is 30%. 30% is the highest it's ever been of students at Biola who are involved in a local church. It's just become this thing that's not important. We don't, I, I mean, that's, that's a cool thing to do on Sundays, but I kind of get my own Bible time on my own. 
um, involvement in the local church, plugging into ministries, being part of the body is vitally important um, to, to your life as a Christian. Um, you can't do things like, I hate the church, but I love Jesus. That doesn't work. You can't hate someone's bride, but love them. Um, so here we are, we're part of the body, we're part of the church. Um, the church isn't perfect. If you've expected the church to be perfect, I'm sorry, you expected wrong. Um, I am a sinner. I'm a terrible sinner. You are all sinners. We should all know that. But when sin happens in the church, it shouldn't shock us. Um, now we should seek reconciliation, we should seek forgiveness, we should seek repentance. If that's not sought, that should shock us. Um, but people here aren't perfect, um, and hopefully nobody's claiming to be, and nobody will be surprised when they find out you're not perfect, because we know from Scripture that we're all sinners. And we're part of this family of God by grace through faith, and we have a righteousness of Jesus that is not our own. That's the only reason we can even be here. Community is sacrificial. Community is difficult. Um, but unity is vitally important to the life of a Christian. Um, the church is a huge deal. The church is important. Um, and we should seek to be a family and act like a family. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace that allow us to even live in a community like this, Lord. We thank you for the love that you pour out to the world through us, Lord, and the love that you've lavished upon us. Um, thank you that this is your world, and um, even when things are wrong and that seems um, like the only thing we hear, Lord, we know that you're still in control and you're still sovereign. Um, so, Lord, I ask that you would guide us this week, that we would be bold about sharing our faith and that we would Seek unity within this community, Lord. Help us to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.